let me ask a, a question on the, on the front end. How many of y'all would say uh, primary influencer in my life was my mom? How many of you guys, your mom, primary influencer? You know, my mom was my primary influencer in my life, no question about it. Um, I, I knew that my mom had grew up in the hills of Tennessee, but they moved to Chicago before I was born, and so we were raised in Chicago. I knew a little bit about how she grew up. Uh, because I would go down every summer and visit my grandma on the farm that my mom was raised on. So I knew a little bit, but uh, she didn't talk a lot about it. And I think probably because I never asked about it, wasn't real interested, I, th- I suppose. I was a kid in the 70s in Chicago, not in the 40s in the hills of Tennessee, so I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention. Well, several years ago, my mom wrote her memoirs. And I remember uh, uh, reading through these. And uh, my first question was, who is this woman? You know, I mean, I would go through and I would read of her dad's death when she was just a baby. I would read about how uh, her mom raised 10 kids and how the older boys went to war. I would read about the one-room schoolhouse and the uh, gullies and the no-shoes and the the, the chores and uh, all of the stuff, her friends and enemies and boys she liked and trouble she got into. Probably the most significant thing, though, is she would write about what was going on in her heart during all of this. And the people who shaped her and the things that she thought and wrestled with. And when I got done, I remember setting it aside and I was just grateful for my mom. I, I, some of the stuff, ways which she raised me, it just made sense to me now, you know. I, I, I don't know the right way to say this, but it was as if my mom's soul and mine became enmeshed. I just loved her so much more, appreciated her so much more, uh, just in knowing her. It, it seemed like in knowing her was my ability to love her. And it makes sense though, right? You can't really love someone you don't know. Very well, anyway. Um, and so I wonder about myself, wonder about y'all, as far as our relationship with God. Does it work the same way? Um, my ability to love and worship Him is dependent on my knowledge of Him. Especially maybe this third person of the Trinity that doesn't get a whole lot of press in, in uh, many evangelical churches today. Uh, and here's the deal. Am, am I missing out? Are y'all missing out on... on worship that we can have, intimacy with Christ that we could have, um, uh, power and, and uh, witness that could be there, uh, peace and security and significance in this life that could be there if we knew him better. Now, we've got limitations. We're never going to know God perfectly. I got that. But do we know him as well as we could know him? This is a question in my mind. And so several weeks back, we launched our series, Ghost Stories, because uh, early versions of the scripture would call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. And so we're calling it Ghost Stories. A couple weeks back, we talked about how the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and as the Son. The Holy Spirit loves you just as much as God the Father and God the the Son. Uh, You need the Holy Spirit for your salvation just as much as you need the Father or the Son. Uh, the Holy Spirit knows, cares about, He is worthy of our, our worship. So this was our first, first week. The last week we talked about, um, what I think, and it's hard to 
quantify here, qualify, but the greatest work of the Holy Spirit, which is regeneration. Remember, we talked last week how Jesus in John chapter 3 comes to Nicodemus, he comes to you and I, and he says, uh, Nicodemus, people, doesn't matter on one level how good you are and how sensitive you are and how kind you are, and how, unless a man, a woman is born of the Spirit, you can't get into the kingdom of, of, of God, all, all bets are off. That's where it's got to start. And so we talked about how the Spirit opens our eyes to our depravity and our yuckiness and, and our spiritual bankruptcy and how he opens our eyes to the grace and the, 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 the power and the mercy of, of Christ. And then he takes our faith as we exercise and, and he brings to bear on our soul all of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And he makes that which is spiritually dead alive. He makes something new. And at that point, he, he comes within us. He's, he's, he's within us, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Don't you know that his Spirit is within you? Romans 8, he lets us know this as well. He says, You, however, at the bottom of the screen, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We have the Holy Spirit at that moment when we become Christians, which is what Ephesians lets us know. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, our salvation experience, a rebirth, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in the presence of his praise of his glory. So we are regenerated. It's his, his greatest work. And we might say, well, that's wonderful. I'm glad for that work. And it's his insight. That's great. And it's, that's wonderful. But what's next? And I'm glad you asked that question because that leads us into this morning, which I think is his second greatest work that he works. Uh, if you, he brought us to himself spiritually reborn and think about a, a parent for a moment. You don't have the baby and then on your way home from the hospital you kind of open the window and, and let him go. You, you, you care for this child, right? I mean, work is just starting. It just having, being, being born is not, well, okay, now we're all done. Oh no, everything is, is just starting at this point and you love this child. Uh, more so than you'd ever thought possible. And, and you, you embrace and you seek to train and raise up and protect. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's a little bit better parent than we are, and that's what he's doing with us. His, his goal, his, his job is, is to raise up. It's, it's to, uh, make us mature. It's to protect. It's to help us see and understand and do life aright. That's his, his job. You say, well, uh, how does he do this? Well, just a couple of, of insights. In John 14, we see a, a title that Jesus gives the Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. That's, a, that's an interesting nickname he gives the, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth. And then in, in John 16, he's going to elaborate on this just a little bit more. He says, I, Jesus, same conversation, he's getting ready to die the next day. But he says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit's job within us is to grow us, is to teach us. He's a a teacher, if we can say it that way. And you might say, well, uh, that's his pretty significant job here, then great, how does he teach us? Because can't say too many times in my life I've heard his voice. There might have been some times I thought, but I was really not sure. And so how, do, how, do, how does he teach us? Good question. And this is the answer. This is the classroom. This is what he has, has given us. Actually, mine's a little bit thicker because i got a lot of notes and stuff in here that are not part of the uh, original text. But check this these verses out. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Excellent. Since he's talking to... Uh, He says, knowing this, first of all, Peter's talking to the saints dispersed abroad, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When it says no prophecy, we think prophecies, you know, predictions of the future. It does include that. But mostly when the word prophecy is used in scripture, it's referring to just the proclamation of God's word. So no proclamation of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's uh, uh, the, the, the whole idea there is source. It doesn't come from a person. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So Paul didn't sit down one day and say, you know what? I think I, I feel like I'm in the mood to write a little Bible. That's what I'm going to do right now. I'm just going to write some scripture. That's what I'm doing. And, you know, Matthew, okay, I think I'm going to write some scripture. That's, uh, they didn't decide that. Matter of fact, we know that there were books that the Apostle Paul wrote that, that weren't here. Everything he writes, is he's not the one inspired. The, the, the text is inspired. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along. The, 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 the word is, is a picture. It's like a stream flowing. And maybe you see a leaf in it. It's being carried along. The, the, the very words are, are of, of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's pretty huge. The, the, the theologians refer to this as inspiration. And we talk about inspiration. We talk about it in one of two ways. Either A, oh, that was a cool song you sang. I feel so inspired. And we just mean I'm motivated now and I'm energized. And that whatever I watched you do or say, that's inspired me. You know, I'm energized. Doesn't mean that. And sometimes we, we talk about somebody's actions or their, their, their speech or whatever else. And we go, oh, that was inspired. And what we mean is that was kind of like really excellent. You know, that was, whoa, you nailed it on that one, baby. You, you hit that on the bullseye. It's getting closer, but it's not really the same thing either. Notice, notice the, the verse, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a bunch of religious guys feeling really religious one day saying, I think I'll write my musings down. No, 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 no. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The inspiration is the process that the Holy Spirit used to use human agents to write his very words. And so the scripture, this is not just a book, it's a supernatural book. And this is, this is it's in its original autographs, inerrant, infallible, 100%, because the Spirit doesn't make mistakes. Now, that, that's, that idea of inspiration is, is being challenged substantially uh, these days, uh, 
Jeff Hayden, sociologist, back in the 80s, he, he did a, a survey among clergy. Sent out a survey for 10,000 uh, clergy. Uh, 7,441 7, actually responded. MacArthur has quoted this. Uh, atheist Sam Harris has quoted this. Just, just a couple of questions from the survey. Question was, was Jesus born of a virgin? There was the question that went off to clergy, right? 60% of United Methodist clergy said no. 49% of United Presbyterians said no. 44% of Episcopalians said no. We're, uh, we're clergy. 19% of Lutheran clergy said no. Is the Bible the inspired word of God? 82% of United Methodists said no. 81% of the United Presbyterians said no. 89% of Episcopalian clergy said no. 57% of Lutherans said no, it's not. Now, some of where these guys are coming from, I, I don't know all of them, but they might say that there are portions in here that are God's word. You know, like whenever the Bible talks about faith things, yeah, yeah, but when it talks about science stuff or history stuff, yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy if you think about it. Somehow God knows about spiritual stuff, but God doesn't know anything about history or science stuff. I would say that if in fact you can't trust God with science and history, things that are verifiable, if you can't trust Him with those things, I'm not so sure we should trust Him with stuff we can't verify. Uh, it's not the spirit of half truth. He's the spirit. Of, of truth. Now, after that's said and done, let me throw this out because it's important that we understand interpretation of the Bible. This is not a science textbook. He did not give this to you and I, 21st century Americans, so we could understand how all of, of life uh, uh, works perfectly together. It's not a manual. Listen, he has a story he's trying to tell. And so just as in life, he uses uh, such literary features. Um, round numbers. Uh, Therese asked me how much money we got in the checkbook. I said we got five bucks. Now, I know we got $5.41, but she doesn't care if I got four dollars She wants to know is it 500 or is it five? So we use round numbers. We use round numbers all the time. If you look into the, the uh, census numbers in, in the book of Numbers, isn't it amazing that they all end in, in, in is, that all the numbers are even? I mean, they, they, they end with, with the last three digits are all, all zeros. Wow, these, the, the people were perfectly numbered. Now, is, is it probably not, but they're using round numbers because that's the kind of thing we use. Just trying to communicate, this was approximately the number that they had. Uh, scripture will use anthropomorphic language. For example, it will say, like Jesus, how often I want to gather you under my wings like a hen doth her brood. Well, we know Jesus doesn't have wings. It talks about how, how the, the right, mighty right hand of God or how the eyes of the Lord range over the whole earth. Well, God does not have a mighty right arm and he doesn't have eyes because in John 4, he doesn't have a body. He, he, his uh, uh, spiritual essence. It's not like one of us, but just really, really, really big. Uh, right, right arm, is, is he's, he's strong. Uh, the eyes, he's just omniscient. He knows, he, he, uh, he knows everything. There's nothing that gets, it's, gets by him. So the scripture will use that. Sometimes when it's talking about heavenly things that we have no category for understanding, it will describe it in human 
terms that we do understand. Scripture uses metaphor. Get the, get the plank out of your own eye, right? Before you get the, the speck of sawdust out of theirs. Well, it's, it's metaphor. We, it's what we use. I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. We use these things all the time. Really? Can you eat the hooves? Can you eat the head? No, 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 it's, don't, don't. It's, it's just metaphor. We say things sometimes that are simply descriptive of how we see things. For example, the, we- the weatherman at night says the sun is rising at uh, 6.11 and it's setting tonight at 6.14. You don't think this weatherman is so foolish because doesn't he understand that the sun really doesn't rise or set? The earth is kind of spinning on its axis and, and we, the sun, that's a, it, it appears that it is, of course, but it's really not. Doesn't he know this? I think he knows this. But he's just sharing in a way that, that we understand what his observation. The Spirit does the same sort of thing. It's not a, a, a science textbook. Every word, though, in here is, is true, properly interpreted. For example, look at Psalm 19. Fascinating. Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's per- no flaws, right? The testimony of the Lord is sure. That means you can trust it. The precepts of the Lord are right as, as opposed to, to wrong. They are righteous. They, they're complete. The commandments of the Lord is pure. There, there's no stain. The, the fear of the Lord is clean. There's no blemish there. It, it's, it's, it's perfect. The rule, rules of the Lord are true as opposed to false. We see this over and over. You know, 4,000 times, 4,000 times, this book claims to be the word of God. And it's amazing because the Pentateuch, first five books, right? We know that was written by Moses. But, of course, Second Peter tells us that Moses wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's why 680 times in the Pentateuch it claims to be the word of the Lord. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, on and on, 307 times claims to be the word of the Lord. The po- poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, poems, mostly David and Solomon, uh, we would think those are the author. Almost 200 times those books claim to be, this is the word of the Lord. It's not just what I'm saying here. Uh, the, the New Testament will quote the Old Testament 320 times. 1,000 times in the New Testament it alludes to the Old Testament as the word of, of, of God. These guys knew that this wasn't just uh, their their musings. Check this out in First First Peter. This is fascinating. It says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel news to you by the, or the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So not, maybe not everybody, but there were some authors, prophets that knew when they wrote that this is talking about a future Messiah. This is foreshadowing the Messiah. This is, I wonder, they knew this wasn't just for them. This was the word of God coming for us as well. The, 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 the scripture is given, it's, it's 
complete. It's true. It's the Holy Spirit's word. This is all he gave us. He could have gave us a 10-volume set, but he, he gave us a complete. This is what we need. It, it's his word. And you, know, you say, well, well this, why? Well, this is, he wants to teach it to us. You see, this is why he came inside us. One of the key reasons, he wants to teach it to us. I remember I was in freshman, sophomore year. I had an algebra teacher. I won't name him, but uh, he was a really awful teacher. He was an awful teacher. Um, he would come in hungover on a regular basis. He didn't want, if you raised a, if you asked a question, he would kind of do one of those kind of things. You know he didn't want to be bothered. He would finally get up and come to you. He smelt like the high heavens. Uh, he just was, uh, he would embarrass you if you, if you asked the wrong question. Just somebody that you just sit back and go, okay, forget it. I don't need to know higher math, I suppose. And so I, I, so I, I blame him for the reason why I don't know higher math today. Then I went to a community college at one point. Uh, there was a, a modern European history class I was intrigued with, so I, I took this class. And I think she was the best teacher I'd ever had in my life. I mean, she was so excited, and she knew her stuff so well, and she gave us between articles and, and thesis that we wrote, and, uh, that people wrote in books, and then she unpacked it all. And I'll tell you what, before that class was done, I was so pumped and so excited. She just had a way of making this come alive. In you, you have the teacher who wrote the book. And he wants to make it come alive in you. That's, that's his goal. That's his job. And there's a reason why. Not just, again, so we have good head knowledge. There's a, a reason why he's given us his word. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, this is what he says. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you know how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you ever thought about this, that apart from the word of God, there is no salvation, you will either respond to reading or to somebody telling it to you, but the word of God is primary in your salvation. It was 380 AD, right? So this was a long time ago, 380 and there was a, a guy by the name of Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. He grew up on the right side of the tracks, I guess. Very wealthy family, uh, highly educated. He was a brilliant uh, person. He knew it. He was a playboy. He was a, a party fiend. He was a carouser. He just lived for himself. One day, according to his testimony, he's walking through the park. And he's thinking about his party lifestyle and, and all of his intelligence and, and how maybe there's just something else and he's just not sure. But he's just walking through the park and he hears, he said it's as if children or kind of like children, we don't know if they were really kids there doing this or just in his head, but as kids singing a song, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And as he's walking through this park, he looks down and there's a New Testament which is an amazing thing because the printing press hadn't been invented yet. And so the books were incredibly rare, very expensive, but there's a New Testament there. So he picks it up. He's not sure exactly what to do with this, though his mom was a Christian, no doubt praying for him, blowing her off. But he opens up to Romans 13. This is what he reads. It says, let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is not typically an evangelism verse. But he's, he's reading this and he's cut to the quick. This is my life. I'm living for these things that I shouldn't be living for. You see, the Holy Spirit takes his word, because it's Holy Spirit's word, and he, he opens up Augustine. So Augustine is born anew. It's what the Holy Spirit does. I was going to invite at one of our Gideons. We've, there's an organization called the Gideons International. They're, they're committed to distributing the word of God. And we've got several in our, our, our body for them to come up and just tell story after story after story of somebody who has come to know Christ just by reading the Bible. There was a day when I thought no one comes to Christ that way. You know, the Bible is just hard to understand. You've got to explain it. And there's going to be graphs and stuff. And, and we've got to help the Bible along, right? The Bible is like a lion. You just kind of let it out of its cage. It will defend itself. It will take care of itself. And, and born again. Born again. Um, Paul says the first thing the scripture does, it's able to make you wise for salvation. Perhaps some of y'all, that's really where you need to start this morning. You're just not, not there. Then 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. That's, that's our inspiration verse. All scripture, not some of it, all of it is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching. For teaching. You know, was it, uh, these are pretty cool glasses. And I know you all see these and you wish you had a pair just like these. They're pretty cool glasses. Um, but I didn't get these glasses so I could stare at them. Notice the bling on there. These are, nice. these are kind of classy. I like these. I didn't get them so I could, I could look at them. I got them so I could look at you. Because my eyesight is very poor. As a matter of fact, right now, I can't see. You look like blobs, you know, less, less than human. I can't tell if you're young or old. Or, or you probably are thinking, some of you all might be thinking, well, keep those babies off then. You know, I, 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 I can't tell if you're a man or woman. You just don't. It's, you know what, it's very dangerous if I drive without these. I mean, it's dangerous for me. Not that I do that, but it's dangerous for me. And it's dangerous for anybody else I might come across on the road or in the ditch or wherever I'm driving at, at that point. Um, because my eyesight is so, so poor. I can't tell. I can't understand. It's too fuzzy. I'm, my eyesight is, is bad in lots of ways. It's bad spiritually. I can't see myself or you or God or sex or work or entertainment or money, or life, death. I, I can't see it properly. Problem is, you're in that same place. Properly, problem is though, I don't always know that. It's just like you grew up in front of one of those curved mirrors and you kind of look and everything is distorted. And, and if, if that's all, the only way you saw life, then everybody you would see would be distorted. Everything you would look at through that mirror would be distorted. You, you would look at yourself and it, the perspective would be distorted. Well, that's the way we look at everything. Problem is, we don't think that the vision's wrong. Well, well Isaiah 55, great chapter on the word of God. Verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the reason why we have the scripture, Holy Spirit's word, is he wants to fit us with right glasses. So we see God 
in ourselves and other people and relationships and, and stuff and time through his eyes. Problem is we don't think we need the glasses. We think we see okay when everything is kind of twisted and distorted, distorted out. Uh, God's word is given f- for teaching, but Paul tells Timothy, it's, that's not the only reason. It's that we make us wise to salvation. It, it's for teaching, but also for reproof. Oh, that's a t- actually, that's a tough word. That's rebuke. You don't like that. We have acquired wrong imaginations and philosophies and thoughts and understandings about ourselves, other people. Maybe because of something that bad that happened to us in the past. Maybe because of good, well-meaning but inaccurate friends, um, atheistic professors. We, we've, we've acquired things that we probably should not have acquired that affect us greatly. All of us have these. And on some of these things, as, as you know, uh, if you're going to build a building, sometimes you can just remodel it. Sometimes you just have to bulldoze the thing and start all over again. This reproof is talking about some of those understandings and imaginations we have that need to be bulldozed. This, is, this is, talks about the spirit convicting of our sin. And, and maybe, have you ever had one of these things where you've gone to church feeling pretty good about yourself, right? If you yeah, things are good. I'm doing okay. Life is good. And then you hear the sermon and the text is open. And it's like, ah, oh, I don't know. Hebrews 4. This is a great, great text. Look at this. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word cuts us sometimes. It, it, it hurts. It, it, it is painful. And sometimes we don't want to have to mess with it. Maybe you're, you're, sometimes you're feeling good, but then when God's word is, is open, his spirit puts his finger on something that's not right. And we're going, ah, it's God's word is given for that. Those things are dangerous for us. They will hurt us. They, they are anchors. They keep us down. Those Holy Spirit, like if you were a parent and your kid is doing something that he shouldn't do, you don't just let it go. I'm just going to let it go. You grab them and you stop it and you point it out. And, and this is what the Spirit's doing. The God's Word does this. It's for reproof. Second Timothy goes on, goes on, Paul goes on to say God's Word is for making one wise, it's for teaching, it's for reproof, and it's for correction. And this is the opposite of the reproof. The reproof, of course, bulldozes the wrong idea, the wrong understanding. The correction now builds the right one. I mean, uh, personal studies right now in the book of Proverbs. I've been in there for, for a while. But I come across, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, every once in a while it talks about the sluggard. The sluggard. Don't you love that word, the sluggard? But of course, I'm not a sluggard. I, I know that. And so that's easy enough. So I'd be tendency, okay, this is about the sluggard and just move on. That's about those other people. I wish they would read those verses. But I don't need these verses because I am not a sluggard. But as I linger on the text for a little bit, I see that the sluggard makes a lot of excuses. That the sluggard is one who's got responsibilities and doesn't nail them. Why nail my responsibilities? You know, most of them, right? And the ones that I don't nail, I've got good excuses for. And I'm like, oh, I'm a sluggard. I know it. I'm a sluggard. And so you cut to the quick because the word does that. Reproof cuts you to the quick. And then as you read on, it talks about how you can honor God with these things that you've been a sluggard with and how you, you can be responsible because the Spirit's job, like a good parent, he's going to 
put away that which kills you, that hurts, and build appropriate, build the right things in your heart and mind. God's word is for correction. It's also, notice that, for training in righteousness. For training in righteousness. Sometimes we think, that God's word is going to be like a self-help book for me. You know, we present, we present it that way sometimes. That, you know, it's going to give you good relationships. You need good relationships, this will help you. And you want to be happier in life? This is your ticket. And, and maybe you want to be more financially stable? This will, this will get, get some good principles to get you there. And if you, if you want to feel better about yourself, and you want to be a better husband, and you want to be a better dad, and you want to be a better person, and you want more friends... We got the ticket right here. And it's seen as just a good self-help book. And this is what I want to do. And so I get into this thing. And, and when it doesn't do those things for me, I, I want to abandon. And we don't realize that that's not the Spirit's goal with this book. That's our goal with this book. We want him to give us it. But that's not his goal with the book. He's not, he's not committed to our happiness. He's committed to our Holiness. Think about that. I don't have this on the screen. Amazing verse. Matthew 4.1. Jesus was just baptized. Remember this? The Spirit comes down on like a dove. The Father from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Very next verse. Matthew 4.1. It says this. It says, And the Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he would be tempted by the devil. Think on that for a minute. Then the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he would be tempted by the devil. Thinking, oh, spirit, spirit, faux pas, man. Why are you leading him into the wilderness where he'd be tempted by the devil? Is it the spirit's goal that I go into the wilderness and that I'd be tempted by the devil? Maybe sometimes. Well, that sounds uncomfortable. Uh, that sounds like warfare. That sounds like terrible stuff. I, I don't know if, I, I would want, if I'm going to want that or like that. Well, sometimes what the spirit wants because he's a good teacher. And he knows exactly what we need and where we need it and what we need it. And that's what he's going to bring through his word into our, into our life. Think of, of so first Peter 2. So it says, newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow into respect to salvation. I should love this. Can you imagine, babe, drinking mom's milk for, I don't know, two or three weeks. Goes in front of a mirror and says, hey, man, what's, what's the problem here? I've been drinking this mom's milk for two or three weeks. I should have facial hair by now. And I should be walking. I should at least be able to roll over for crying out loud. This mom's milk stuff is just overrated. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with it. Most probably, the kid's not going to end up with facial hair. Most probably not going to end up walking or even rolling over. Um, but if the child continues, continues, you know what? In time, he's going to grow. If, if, we, if we continue in God's word, maybe treat it like, like, like you're eating, whether I'm sick or not, whether I'm tired or not, whether I've got other things going on or not, whether I'm, I'm, I'm busy or not, is, is we, we, we're committed to it and we keep eating. You know what's going to happen? You will grow. And it may not be by massive growth spurts. And that's what happens. We look in the mirror. I should be farther along than I am right now. But, but you will grow. He, he promises. That's what he does. That's what he's about. When we take his word and we, we seek to ingest it, soak ourselves on it with, with the Holy Spirit as our teacher, he will make out. It's his promise. He promises to take 100% of 
responsibility for the life given 100% to him. He promises that. God's word. Now, now the, the reason, and that's of course in 2 Timothy 3.17 that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's that, that uh, holiness thing. He, his, his, he is committed to helping us be e- equipped. That's what, he's, that's what he's about. And you might say, well, I, 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 I'm not. I try to read the Bible, and I don't get anything out of it. You know, the Spirit is like, I got, I got a substitute teacher, I guess, going on. I don't know what's happening, but it's just not working for me. So what's the deal with that? Real quickly, a couple things. First of all, make sure you're a disciple, Right? If, if, you're, if you're not uh, born again, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the only people that are going to get anything spiritual out of this are people who have the Spirit within them. Which makes sense, because if this is the Spirit's word, I have got guys on my shelves in my office who are incredible linguists, and incredible historians. Uh, they treat the Bible as literature, and I learned much in those fields from them, but they're not believers. And so there's, there's, you, you know it when you read through this stuff because there's just a line that they can't get below. It's where the Spirit has to, to put in. So you may not, you gotta ask first, am I a believer? Because if you're a believer, then it's, it's where you start. Second thing is you need to be devoted to it. In Acts 2.42, this is a, a great verse. It says, right, new believers, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. They were devoted to it. They didn't dabble with it. It's amazing to me to see how many believers dabble with the word of God and then expect to see major growth. I'll do a little bit here. A couple weeks later, I'll do a little bit there. I'll kind of half give a little bit there, and what's the problem? What's, I'm not seeing anything here. They're dabbling. They're not devoted. Perhaps you're dabbling with the word of God. You're not devoted to it. If you're not devoted to it, don't expect the spirit to be devoted to your growth. You're not. Another element. So we get, uh, there's, there's a... a uh, Devotion we have to have, but there's a diligence that we have to have as well. In Acts seventeen eleven, uh, Paul says that, that those now these Jews or Luke says that were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Th- these guys heard Apostle Paul preach. You think if there is anyone you can trust, it's the Apostle Paul. But they would listen to the Apostle Paul and they would say, "Ah, I'm going to check. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper." And what the deal is, is they were, they were, they were devoted, but they, they, they had a, a mindset that said, you know what, this is big boy, big girl stuff. I'm not interested in being spoon-fed. I'm taking the, the reins to my own spiritual life, spiritual self-leadership, and I'm going to grow. I'm going to be in it. I'm going to know it. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to grow. This, uh, there's the diligence aspect. And then uh, we need to we need to uh, make sure that uh, this is the biggest one probably that we do away with sin. Probably the greatest hindrance to hearing the Holy Spirit is sin in our lives, unconfessed stuff we know is sin. We know this is sin. We know we know we know. But we come to the Bible and we expect the Spirit to say something to us, and there's no reason for Him to say anything to us because He already has, and we've blown Him off. And if we're not going to do what He's already told us to do, why should He give us any more? There's no reason to. And so when we have unconfessed sin in our heart, we know it, we're just going to hang on to it. doesn't matter. might be best not even go to the Word. Because then you're building yourself into a mode of 
Phariseeism, if you do. Was it uh, years ago, I was in a class, a business class, and they flew in this business guru guy to teach us. And uh, I'll never, never forget this. He said, uh, first day of class, he said, I want to tell you guys a story. He said, once upon a time, he says, this is, by the way, this is a true story, 100%. Uh, he says this, there was, there was a, a little boy named Tommy, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, very poor, uh, very uneducated family, but he was very excited about going to school one day. That's what his hope was. He'd make friends, maybe, and he'd learn things. He was excited about that. So when the day came and he went off to kindergarten and, and first grade, he, he just really struggled. I mean, it seemed like everyone else was learning their ABCs, but, but he was trying, but it just wasn't going very well. And maybe they had as much trouble as he was having, but, but it sure didn't seem that way. And, and first grade was, was difficult, and second grade was really difficult, and he just wasn't sure what to do with this. Well, third grade came around, and he, he went off to, to school, and the, the teacher up front, first day, introduced all the students. They said, okay, come on up, and here's the chalk, and write your name on the board, and, and introduce yourself. So he came on up and got the chalk and said, okay, write your name on the board. So he wrote his name, Y-M-O-T, Tommy. Well, all the kids started laughing. Ah, ha, 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 ha. And the, the teacher started getting upset. I was like, you know, for crying out loud, are you the class clown? Are you the class clown? Okay, good. We're all real. That's funny. You're very funny. He erased his name, gave him the chalk again, write your name correctly. So he's... Tommy's not sure what he did wrong in the first place, but he's kind of, <laughs> all right, here we go. So he writes his name, Y-M-O-T, Tommy. And, and the kids are all laughing, and the teacher says, okay, listen, fine, fine. You want to be called Yamat? That's it. That's good. That's your name, Yamat. Okay, Yamat, go sit down, listen. Everyone, anyone calls him anything other than Yamat, you're in trouble. That's his name. That's what he wants to be called. So all year, everyone, teacher, everyone's referring to him as Yamat. He gets done with the year. awful, awful year, obviously. His parents receive a letter home. Uh, and now they are illiterate. They can't read. They don't know what it says, but it's on school letterhead. It looks pretty official. If they could read, it would, they would recognize it. It says, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Stevenin, you must realize that Yamat is severely mentally handicapped and should not continue with school. They weren't sure what it said, though, so they folded it up and put it in the drawer. And next next year, it came around, and and lo and behold, Tommy goes off goes off to goes off to school, fourth grade, thinking, "Oh, great, this is going to be another one of these type of things." Well, his teacher that year is Mrs. Anderson, and Mrs. Anderson right away recognizes what's going on with with Tommy. And so she puts this halt to anyone calling him Yamat. No one calls, you call him Yamat, you're out of the class. And that's not, and then she pulls him aside and she says, Tommy, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You get 51% of your spelling words and you can read at our lowest level. I'll pass you this year. But it's going to take some work. So can you, can you come for, uh, ditch out on recess and just, we'll just, you and I will just work on this. And so he says, absolutely, I'm never picked for anything anyway. That's a great thing. So he came to recess, and they worked and worked, and they still weren't doing well. Tommy was still struggling. And so she said, okay, can you stay one hour each day after school? Because we've got to get this, Tommy. I have to, to fail you. So he says, all right, all right. So he's every day after school, and he's banging his head on the, on the table. He doesn't understand, why can't I get this? Halfway through the school year, 
He's still failing miserably. So Mrs. Anderson says, listen, I, I don't live far from you. Saturday mornings, can you come over to my house and we'll just continue working on this? And so he says, absolutely. And so he's, Saturday mornings, recess after school, they're working, they're working, they're working. End of the year, he has 51% of his spelling words done. He can read at one of the lowest levels. And so she passes him and he goes home just elated. This is great. I'm doing so much better. But he knows reality, but, but he's doing better. Well, summer goes over, it's time for school to start again. And he walks to school in fear and trepidation, because if I get a teacher like Mrs. Anderson, I'm going to do okay. But if I get one like that guy I had the year before, it's going to be a tough year. Well, he walks in, sits down in class, and, and then, then walks in the teacher, Mrs. Anderson. Mrs. Anderson had taught at that school 35 years, every single year, fourth grade, except one. She's teaching fifth grade this year. So immediately she sits down with Tommy. She says, here's the deal. Recess after school Saturday morning. Let, let's work on this. He says, absolutely, good deal. Throughout the year, they were, by the end of the year, he's one of the top grades in spelling. His reading is, is, is close to the t- top as well. He uh, said that, that when he got his doctorate in, in business, the school he put his doctor, submitted his doctorate to, his thesis to, uh, they chose it as one of the top theses in their, their, their program, so they sent it to a national competition where actually uh, Tommy's uh, doctoral thesis was accepted as the best uh, doctoral thesis in business that year. There was big celebration in New York. His mom came, Mrs. Anderson came, a big celebration. When everyone left, he was getting ready to get on the plane. His mom gave him a letter and said, you know, I think you might find this interesting. Uh, during his flight, he remembered the letter, pulled it out of his suit coat, opened it up, school letterhead, old letter, dear Mr. and Mrs. Stevenin, you must realize that Yamat is severely mentally handicapped and should not continue with school. This guy says, now this is a true story, and the reason why I know it's true is it's my story. It's what happened to, 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 to me. Uh, this was a class I took at Moody, and the teacher they brought in, Thomas, Dr. Thomas Stevenin, uh, incredibly devoted, godly man. It seemed like Mrs. Anderson was teaching him more than, than how to curb his dyslexia. Wouldn't it be cool to have a teacher like Mrs. Anderson, who is so, so committed she, she knows where you're really struggling. She understands what the issue is. She knows how to work with it. And she brings everything to bear, all the energy and time that she has to bear on, on, on helping you. Wouldn't it be great to have a, a, a teacher like that? And you do, of course, you know. The Holy Spirit. Now listen, it doesn't, I don't care if you're getting 36 on your ACTs and you're, you're, you're just acing your SATs. Bottom line is, you are, we all are spiritually dyslexic. You are. And you don't have an up on anybody else to say, well, I'm just going to spend a few minutes in here and I'm going to get it. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. But the Holy Spirit knows your issues. He knows where you're going to have the greatest struggles and where you've got the greatest problems. He, that's, the, that's the greatest thing about this teacher because he knows everything about us. And he knows what's in here. And he wants to bring this to bear on our life to grow us, to make us. That's his, that's his plan. That's what he's about, as any good parent would be. So let me ask you, are you going to class? Because if, if Tommy does not go to class, it doesn't matter what a good teacher Mrs. Anderson is or isn't. He's not going to avail himself of anything. If he's not 
staying in from recess once in a while, if he's not going on Saturday mornings or staying after school, if he's not devoted to it, it's not going to happen. We have got the Spirit of God in us. His number one job is to teach us. And he has given exactly what he knows. Maybe there are verses in there, I think about this sometime, that he gave specifically for me. And, and as we are at his feet, as we are praying, Lord, if you will open my eyes to something today, I promise you, I will, I'll act on it. If there's, you, you convict me of some sin, I promise you, I'll let it go. Is there something I need to make restitution of and you show me, I promise you I'll do that. If there's something you've commanded of me and you show me, I promise you I'll do it. Is that not a prayer you think he wants to answer? That's what he's about. So again, I know life is busy. I understand that. But when we understand that the Bible is the very words of the Holy Spirit who's within us, who's waiting perhaps to, to grow us, to apply it to us, to teach us, whether we think we're growing or not, if we're there, we, we, we will be. Amazing thing. Would you, would you pray with me? Thank you, oh God, again. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us your word. It's not generic word. Somehow you ask God, it is tailor-made for each of us. You know exactly uh, just our foibles, mine, and where I struggle and where I need in a Holy Spirit. Thank you. That you're, you're committed to making the light brighter to my sanctification. And so I pray for myself and these guys, Lord, would we tarry in your word? Would we linger maybe a little longer? Would we hear what you have to say? Would we be as devoted to your word, to knowing you, Holy Spirit, as, as we can possibly be as mortals? And I can't imagine what you would do through a church that is committed to you and your word in that way. But I would love to see that. Thank you too, Lord, for the offering we're about to receive. May it, please may it go, go towards the, uh, bringing this news to the people, the kids here, the, the people here and in Erie and in this world. That you're for them. You're not a God of legalism and rules and burdens. And, um, but you're a God of freedom because we know your word. Uh, with the truth, we're made free. So th- thank you. We, we commit this to you now in your son's name. Amen.